you're listening to High Temperature Times. And you know how when you walk by a storefront and the blasting air conditioner washes over you and just pulls you inside? This podcast is analogous to that. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I'm an application specialist with Harvest Walker International, a member of Calderas. If you didn't get the hook, line, and sinker from that first sentence, let me cast a line out again. It's hot out there. Very hot. Places all across the world are hitting new heat records with temperatures over 110 degrees. And let me be the first to say, yuck. But that's nothing for refractory materials. The high heats, they can brush off easily. But it's that moment when you step out of your nicely air-conditioned house into the blazing suns of the Serengeti that can begin to ring alarm bells for refractories. That's right, this month on HGT, we're going to sit in front of this fan and talk about thermal shock of refractories. Don't worry, no Darth Vader voice though. Let's start by talking about why thermal shock is no bueno. What's really going on here? There are two key factors that relate to the occurrence of thermal shock in a material. The first is thermal expansion, that whole all materials expand when heated and contract when cooled stick. Close your eyes and picture a brick. If you're driving while listening to this or operating any heavy machinery, please don't do that. That nine by four and a half by three inch brick is gonna grow at a rate of something like four times 10 to the negative six percent per Fahrenheit. That means that after about a thousand degrees, it grows by 0.4%. That nine inch side becomes 9.036 inches. The four and a half inch side becomes 4.518 inches. You get it. Well, if we heat that brick from room temperature to a thousand degrees so fast that the outside gets to a thousand F before the inside does, then the surface of the brick will expand before the inside gets a chance to. It will literally pull the surface away from the core. This is probably a good time to introduce the other key factor, thermal conductivity. Bricks are insulators, right? Sure, some are way more insulating than others, but if I take my kiln from 2500F to room temperature, the heat stays in that brick for a heck of a long time, doesn't it? It works the same going the other way. It takes a lot of energy to heat a 9 by 45 by 3 inch brick from room temperature to 1000 Fahrenheit, and the heat can only get from the surface to the core of the brick so fast. So if we blast the surface of that brick with heat faster than we can push heat to the core of the brick, you're going to see the surface of the brick expanding to 9.036 inches, before the core of the brick sees any thermal expansion. So we know two processes that can thermal shock a refractory. If a refractory grows and shrinks a lot, when it changes temperature, it's going to be more likely to thermal shock. Also, if a brick takes a long time to have the core of the brick becomes the same temperature of the surface of the brick, it's more likely to thermal shock. So let's talk on that first one first. Different materials expand at different rates. Earlier, I was using something like a bauxite-based alumina for my thermal expansion math but other materials like magnesia will expand more over the same temperature. So where our nine inch alumina brick became 9.036 inches over after a thousand Fahrenheit, our magnesia brick is going to become 9.054 inches. That's 50% more than the alumina brick saw. I know you're all rolling your eyes right now because I'm so far gone to be including thousands of inches. And you're probably right that I could have thrown some rounding in there, but you would be astonished at how much of a difference that 18 thousandths of an inch makes when you're dealing with thermal shock and thermal cycling. I've had some very smart people tell me that they need basic brick for their kiln and use mag chrome bricks instead of pure magnesia bricks because those few thousandths of an inch less shrinkage means that they can reliably modify their firing schedule and take their kiln down for repairs without cracking up the brick. So if highly expansive brick products like magnesia are bad for thermal shock? Are there materials with extremely low coefficients of thermal expansion that are really good for thermal shock? Well, I'm glad you asked. Fused silica and vitreous silica products are very unique in their ability to withstand thermal shock. These products are so thermally stable that they have almost a tenth of the thermal expansion that magnesia does. Where that 
Alumina brick was expanding by 36 thousandths of an inch. A vitreous silica brick like Visal will only expand by 10 thousandths of an inch. Products like Visal brick or Thermax castables can be dunked into water pretty much infinitely without showing signs of thermal shock. It's pretty incredible. That said, they do have one really interesting limitation. They're really only usable up to 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. Above 2000 Fahrenheit, the vitreous silica will undergo a phase transformation to cristobalite. It's pretty neat from there because it's not exactly the end of the world for the material. The phase change from vitreous silica to cristobalite is a mild one with only a small volume change in the grain. And the thermal expansion curve for cristobalite is crazy. It's also incredibly flat with almost no thermal expansion between 1000 and 2400. So you can continue to thermally shock it as long as you stay between those numbers. But if you go above 2400, you'll go from cristobalite to alpha quartz, and that has a 17% volume increase that will pretty much just tear your refractory apart. And if you go below 1000 Fahrenheit, your thermal expansion curve changes to a very steep drop, and suddenly your brick is shrinking almost 10 times faster than the magnesia brick would. There are some customers out there who use vitreous silica products above 2000 Fahrenheit and enjoy the benefits of cristobalite, but when they take their kiln down, they need to tear those brick out because they're cracked up. Pretty cool, huh? The other thing we were talking about before I rambled on maybe a bit too long about thermal expansion is thermal conductivity. If we have a material that can conduct heat through it very quickly, we can heat it up as fast as we want and the inside will heat up just as fast as the outside and we won't thermal shock it. Interestingly enough, materials like that do exist, but the applications for them are not especially common. I mean, refractories are supposed to contain the fires of industry, not let them pass right through. Except in examples like boiler tubes or water walls and like a water-cooled cupola furnace. We actually want to pull the heat through that material very quickly. So NYSIC 20, a nitride-bonded silicon carbide brick, has a thermal expansion coefficient somewhere around 0.3% per 1000 Fahrenheit, similar to a fire clay brick, but it's very thermal shock resistant because it's so much more thermally conductive than a fire clay brick. I guess another factor there that it's also ridiculously strong. It won't blow apart because the strength of the material just won't let it. Anyways, something that comes up fairly often is insulating products. If a thermally conductive brick is resistant to thermal shock, then a thermally insulating brick isn't. But why are insulating fire bricks like IFB so resistant to thermal shock? The answer is, they probably aren't. If I took an IFB and dunked it in water, it probably wouldn't hold up so well. It's hard to do because there's tons of porosity in there. That's probably just going to cause air pressure that blows it apart for a different reason. But the simple statement would be to not hose down the inside of your IFB line furnace while it's still 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. The IFB stands up really well to thermal cycling and fast ramp rates because of their incredibly low thermal conductivity. Let's talk about cooling a furnace because A, cooling is worse than heating when it comes to thermal shock, and B, it's easier to envision what's going on. If I take a furnace at 2500 Fahrenheit and I turn it off, there's no more heat being put into the kiln. So it should cool down pretty rapidly, right? But it doesn't. I can't open my kiln for quite a while. The bricks slowly radiate heat outwards and the rate at which they lose heat is so slow because they have such low thermal conductivity. It takes ages to pull the heat out and the air around that brick remains hot for a very long time. The bricks aren't actually being thermal shocked. They control their own atmosphere around them. Now, if I blow a fan on them or hose them down with water, maybe I can do some damage. I don't know. I, it's a question I've had for quite a while. Maybe you have some thoughts. I would love to hear them. 
Anyways, I'm dragging on too long. There is one more aspect of this topic that I'd like to dig into further, and that's mechanisms to prevent thermal shock in standard refractory products. Most aluminum materials aren't fantastic against thermal shock. They're insulators. They expand when heated, so they pop when fired or cooled too fast. But what can we do to make them withstand thermal shock better than normal? To talk about that, we need to hop on the Magic School bus and head down to the SEM to look closer at what's happening when you do thermal shock a product. When a material is exposed to thermal shock environments, stresses are being put on the material and cracks may begin to form. Crack formation is a means to relieve the thermomechanical stress from the temperature gradient. When the stresses return to more reasonable levels, either through relieving those stresses through cracks or by equilibrating the temperature gradients in the brick, the cracks stop. But most materials can take at least one thermal shock event, typically. It's sequential thermal shock events that test the metal of a refractory. So as new thermomechanical stresses are imparted, either new cracks form or more commonly, existing cracks will expand. Eventually, those cracks will propagate far enough to cause serious structural damage to the refractory, reducing the module's elasticity and the strength to a point where it can't withstand the forces it's designed to contain. There are a couple ways to test thermal shock the quantitative way, and the qualitative way. Quantitative testing, while less common, is a seriously robust test procedure where samples are thermally shocked and then have their tensile strength tested through MOR to show reduction in strength due to introduction of cracks. Qualitative testing simply takes a set of samples and thermally shocks them by quenching them in cold water to show how many cycles a material can take before being too weak and crumbly to return to the kiln for the next cycle. The qualitative testing is only good for comparing two samples like for like, and will not be especially useful in how it will work in a particular application, but the same could probably be said for quantitative testing, because how many applications go from 2000 Fahrenheit to cold water in their thermal shock environment? Every case is unique, so we do our best to infer differences from the larger body of, of data that is qualitative testing. Now, some products are quite good in thermal shock, and other products are downright rubbish. Why is that? Well, there are certain tricks we can pull to improve a material's ability to withstand thermal shock without degrading its general performance. The really great thing about material science and refractory technology is that there's more than one way to skin this cat. Disclaimer, HTT does not condone the action of skinning cats. It's merely a colloquialism. Anyways, one approach to improving thermal shock resistant is really only using castable materials, and it's the addition of stainless steel fibers to a mix. I spoke on these little guys in another dedicated episode, but the concept here is to increase the amount of force it takes to widen a crack. Think of it like Spider-Man holding together that boat with his web slingers in whichever of the far too many Spider-Man films were made. The crack wants to propagate and get bigger and wider, but needles with high elastic deformation absorb that stress or strain or whatever it is that holds the refractory together, and studies show that it can actually work very, very well. 2 to 3% of by weight addition of stainless steel needles can drastically improve thermal shock resistance of a material. That said, you are adding a metal to a highly refractory product, so it's going to significantly reduce the max usable temperature of the material. You get those bad boys too hot and they're going to rust and become more than useless at their job. So actually, HWI developed another approach to the concept by using large aggregate in the mix instead of stainless steel fibers, you can get that same thermal shock resistant with no impact on max use temperature because the large aggregate is just as refractory as the rest of the castable. Here, however, we're using a different approach to stopping cracks. Where stainless steel needles were using Spider-Man's webs to prevent a crack from opening up, large aggregates act more like the Hulk, stopping a crack in its place. 
when a thermal shock event happens, that crack comes barreling through the material like bulls on parade, but if it hits one of these large aggregates, it's unlikely to have enough force to break through it. Instead, if it still has enough energy to move, it's going to need to change direction and go around. And just like rounding second base, it's going to lose energy when changing direction. The incredibly high fracture toughness of those large aggregate make a far more torturous path for cracks to cleave the entire way through a material. So where stainless steel fibers utilize their elastic properties to remove energy from a crack, coarse aggregate mixes use their toughness to force cracks to change direction and remove energy. Different approach, same results. But that's not all. There's also mineralogical ways we can approach thermal shock resistant. Uh, Andalusite is often known for its ability to withstand thermal shock, and the way it does is kind of complicated, but really cool. So Andalusite is, a, is known as a mollite preformer. Mollite's a great material that's not commonly found in nature, but it's a common product of, re of a reaction between alumina and silica. A great joke I heard from a friend of mine says, if you put a group of ceramic engineers in a room, the conversation will always evolve into a discussion on mollite. Anyways, this 57% alumina grain will eventually turn into mollite around 2400 Fahrenheit. But it doesn't just turn into mollite, it turns into about 87% mollite and 13% remains of silica, which becomes this glassy phase within the unique microstructure of that mollite slash andalusite grain. That glassy phase acts as a shock absorber during thermal shock events that prevents crack initiation. So where we needed to add something to other mixes to get thermal shock resistance, 57% alumina-based materials are naturally just fantastic at resisting thermal shock. But here's an interesting question. If we're looking at qualitative testing of thermal shock resistance, we're only heating our products up to 2000 Fahrenheit and then quenching them. And Andalusite doesn't form mullite until 2400. So why is it still thermal shock resistant? And honestly, that's a toughie. I do have somewhat of an answer, but I am genuinely curious how these two aspects of, of Andalusite performer thermal shock resistance and molatilized Andalusite thermal shock resistance play together. So why does it still work? Looking at the right-hand window of our Magic School Bus, we can see that a grain of Andalusite features a lot of microcracks. This grain almost looks like somewhat like a bunch of platelets stacked together really poorly that leave a bunch of gaps in between them. And, and the microcracks that are these gaps actually work against new crack formation during thermal shock events. When a crack grows into and through the Andalusite grain, it enters these large surface area voids and the energy dissipates into it like a fart in a vacuum. All energy, but no bang. So these Andalusite grains are really unique in that they have some serious microcracking that have stellar surface area to volume ratios that don't impact overall refractory strength in any meaningful way. It's literally using cracks to stop cracks from growing, fighting fire with fire. Another way we can approach mineralogical thermal shock resistance is through the addition of dissimilar materials like zircon to a refractory body. I'll be perfectly honest, when I heard zirconia and stopping cracks from thermal shock, I became as giddy as a little schoolgirl. I was convinced that it had something to do with transformation toughening, and I was downright amped to be given the opportunity to attempt to explain transformation toughening on this podcast but it has nothing to do with that. And instead, it's all about utilizing materials with different th coefficients of thermal expansion. So while it's not due to one of the coolest phenomena in material science, the actual concept of using thermal expansion gradients to fight thermal gradients is still really cool. So let's talk about that. If I take a brick that has a thermal expansion coefficient of say like four times 10 to the minus six and throw in some material that has an expansion coefficient of six times 10 to the minus six, they're not gonna play nice. When I fire that brick at the plant, the aggregate's going to apply tensile forces to the material around it and smack it around a bit. That differential thermal expansion between the two materials adds some microcracking to the brick. 
Microcracking just means that there's a distribution of high surface area, low volume cracks on the micron scale with seemingly no origin point and sometimes two pointed ends. This is different from standard cracks where you can follow a crack from a fat open end to a skinny crack tip. And these microcracks are evenly distributed throughout the matrix of the material. Now, just like andalusite I spoke on earlier, these microcracks do a great job at diffusing the energy of thermal shock propagated cracks. If a crack hits it, it will blunt it or force the energy into a different direction by going around or going through it. But it's a small addition with a big change. I've got two really good examples on this. The first is Kayla, a 50% alumina brick, and its counterpart, the thermal shock resistant Kayla SR. Now, Kayla will last for about 10 to 15 cycles in a qualitative water dunk test. That's all right, not great, but that's all right while Kayla SR will last for 37 cycles. Now that's really good. Ruby is another example. This high purity alumina brick with 10% chromia also comes in a standard and thermal shock resistant flavor. The standard brick only lasts for two cycles, which is rubbish, but it's also not entirely surprising for chromia bricks. However, the thermal shock resistant Ruby SR lasts for 24 cycles when being dunked from 2000 Fahrenheit to cold water. That's a big change. Now, the question I mentioned earlier that I might expect is, is that of strength, right? If, I, mean, I mean, if we're cracking up the inside of a brick to make it shock resistant, aren't we making it weaker? And, you know, it's a valid question, but I want to put some data to it. Uh, Kayla has an MOR value of 2,000 PSI at room temperature, while Kayla SR is around 1,500 PSI. It's a small difference, but it's still a strong brick for what's going on with this microstructure. Ruby and Ruby SR show compression strength instead for their data sheets, and the difference is a mere 500 PSI, going from 12,500 PSI for Ruby to 12,000 PSI for Ruby SR. That is a negligible difference. So these micro cracks are truly what they say on the tin, micro. They're not significant within the macro structure of the material, but it's pretty cool, huh? So I'm sure there are lots of other tools used to add thermal shock resistance to refractory materials. Some of them I could probably ding into with a little help from the old HTTPs, but others are going to be kept a little closer to their chest. After all, the secret sauce is what makes us all competitive, isn't it? Still, the clever approaches people can take to make refractory materials more flexible, more versatile, more approachable is just awesome. Hopefully you've learned a little bit about why refractory suppliers like HWI are cautious when talking about accelerated ramp rates and cool rates. Thermal shock is a unique phenomenon, but we won't let that stop us from making great refractory products that fit your need. If you'd like to learn more about thermal shock resistant products or how you can get more out of your refractory lining, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. Until then, be sure to tune in next month for another great lesson in why refractories rule. Thanks for listening.